It's the heart of vacation season, but it's so great to see all of you here, and if vacations have brought you here, and you're a guest with us, I want you to know how glad we are that you would come and worship with us today. And I'm so grateful to have Dr. Wade Nunley uh, with me again. We've been in a multi-week series entitled The Case for Truth, which is a, ba- a series on why we believe what we believe, and it's been a, a great privilege to partner with, Wonderful. with you, Dr. Wave. It's been my privilege. And apparently you and I got the same memo on how to dress today. I so, think so. To, the, what can I say? The same email. Let's just uh, fess up. Um, you've taught a class here that meets at 9 o'clock, still online. Soon we'll start meeting live in the activity center for like 25 years, and you're a great gift. We've done Israel trips together. We love, love and appreciate you. And, you know, your message a few weeks ago on the manuscript and, and archaeological evidence for the right. Bible. Right. And then your message on, on evidence for the life of Jesus from non-Christians outside the Bible. I mean, right. that was an amazing message. I'll never forget the summary slides at the end of where you reconstructed the entire life of Jesus as we find it here, but all from non-Christian amazing. sources and just helps give us confidence and then last week, the evidence for the resurrection, which is the centerpiece. So th- this is uh, it's actually, we've done a few interactive messages as well right. through this series. This will yep. be our last one uh, before, uh, before you're done. I'm going to do two on faith and science. Dr. Nunley did not volunteer to be yeah, a part of those. I'm going to leave that but, part to you. But we, we have two more <laughs> weeks in this series, and it's going to be on faith and science. We're going to have fun. I'm going to show you some of the T-shirts people give me. Um, rocket science t-shirts are going to be fun next week. But anyway, <laughs> I, I just wanted you to express your appreciation to Dr. Nunley for all his help. It's my serious. privilege. Thank you. My blessing. And kudos, kudos to all of you for being willing to uh, actually wade into some things that you may not always hear on a Sunday morning in a church service, but it's just very important. We engage our spirits and our brains both. Amen. And uh, do this together yes. in relationship and community. So <clears throat> thank you for um, the wonderful way you've tracked with us. Today we're going to ask a question. Um, are, aren't there many ways to God? And that's popularly believed by the majority of Americans. There are many ways to God. And yet Jesus... Uh, objected to that proposition. And his answer to the question, aren't there many ways to God? His answer was no. That distresses a lot of people. It's one of the reasons C.S. Lewis says Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord of all. Because Jesus was pretty clear about this. In fact, John 14, verse 6, these are his words. Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way to God. And no one reaches God except through me. Or 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. This would be the Apostle Paul writing. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So you've got us and you've got God. And there's a gap there. And somebody's got to mediate that relationship And there's only one who mediates that relationship, and it's Jesus Christ, he said. And then uh, the apostles, uh, they'd been arrested in Acts chapter 4, and they're responding, 
and they say to the actually religious authorities, salvation, this is Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So they draw the line very clear. There's no ambiguity here. There are not many ways to God. God is the way. So Dr. Nunley and I are going to start with two overall perspectives that I think we need to establish uh, as we approach this, because it's very offensive, to be honest, to a lot of people. And they say, well, if you're sincere, right? If you're sincere, um, you know, that's all that matters. And, but I have found when I take my car in to be repaired, if they don't repair what's broken, I'm not in a mood to then pay the bill and say, well, I'm sure your mechanics were sincere, even though they repaired the wrong thing. <laughs> because all repairs ultimately lead to the same place. You know, you just don't do that. You're having to negate a lot of realities um, with that. Mm -hmm. And one of the first overall perspectives is that there is more than one way to access the spiritual realm. The question is, is there more than one way to access God? Because there's a lot more to the spiritual realm than God. There are demonic powers. There, this, is why, this is why, I mean, we, we encourage you to renounce anything you've ever done in the areas of occultism. I mean, the whole thing, astrology, seances, Ouija boards, um, white magic, black magic, horoscopes, I mean, all of these things. I have friends who live in parts of the world where the dominant world religion involves having, having an, an idol altar in your home and you worship objects. But even the Bible tells us, and, and, and they tell us from countless stories, that you do, you do access spiritual powers when you access the spiritual realm outside the name of Jesus. But those are dark, very demonic, and they talk about a lot of demonism, and I've prayed for people who've needed deliverance from demonic powers and all of these things. So, so th this is, first of all, I think what we want to establish. The question is, are there many ways to God? Understanding that there are many ways into the spiritual realm, and there, there are other powers, not the Holy Spirits, but there are other spirits <clears throat> in the demonic realm. That's why in 1 John 4, Verse 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because some are not from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the spirit of God, particularly. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, not the spirit of Christ, but the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even is now already in the world. So that's the first perspective, just to keep this clear. You can access the spiritual world by, world by many paths, but it won't get you to God. This is where the exclusiveness comes. But isn't it true that Christianity is not the only faith that claims exclusivity? exclusivity. I kept practicing that word this week and I still can't get it. You're exactly right, Pastor Jim. Uh, we in more orthodox evangelical Christianity have the rap of you know, being exclusivistic, 
of being prideful, of, of having a closed system, and that it's our way or the highway and that sort of thing, and that this is our problem. This is unique to us. Nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, most world religions, most religious expressions have aspects of exclusivity built in within them, whether this is uh, Hinduism, whether it's uh, aspects of Judaism, even going all the way back to the early rabbis where, quote, every Israelite has a share in the world to come. You got that, right? Israelite. Uh, or uh, Hinduism, or more popular expressions uh, in the United States, like Mormonism, or Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witness, and in, it, even, and maybe especially, in Islam, where it is indeed their way or the highway. So this rap that we are given in the popular press and, and, and by secular-minded professors and that sort of thing, that, well, you know what, this is your problem. If, if you just kind of give up on your uniquenesses, on, on your exclusivistic claims, then we could all, you know, quote, get along and nothing can be further, further from the truth. The question is not, do we have exclusivistic claims or do other re world religions have exclusivistic claims, but what's the value? They all stand on their own. Do your claims of exclusivity stand on their own? Um, uh, I would argue this, that our claims for exclusivity go all the way back to the very beginning when God called Father Abraham or when God spoke through Moses. And, and the charge was, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Yeah. So this is not something that we made up. Jesus comes along and he doubles down on this and he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. So one of the things that I, I would encourage you to recognize is this did not start with evangelical Christianity, nor did it start in the days of the apostles, nor did it start with the great council movements of the fourth and fifth century, and it didn't start when we came up with the statement of fundamental truths or any other statement of faith by an evangelical organization. This stuff starts back at the origin. And so when you're having a conversation, when the the conversation comes to the point where, well, yeah, but don't you think that it's kind of awkward? Isn't it, isn't it sort of presumptuous? Isn't it prideful for you to claim that your way is the only way? Then that's when I throw my hands up and I say, look, I'm sorry, but I was about 2,000 years late to this party. This starts with Jesus. Now, if you have a problem with exclusivity, please feel free to take that up with him. And by the way, for you guys to know, he's got really broad shoulders. He can handle that kind of scrutiny. He can handle those kinds of questions. And in fact, um, introduce, uh, uh, move the argument from, from what you believe and, 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 and what you expect of, of other people and what your church teaches and whatever and say, please just take this up with Jesus. Mm -hmm. He's the one who said those words. He's going to own that. And oh, by the way, those words he signed in his own blood. He loved you enough to have taken your place right. in terms of punishment for whatever things that you have done wrong, things that you've committed against uh, other people. Please take that up with Jesus. I'm absolutely certain when you can get the two together, Jesus will take care of business. Indeed. Amen. You know, Jesus had an, 
had an interesting way of approaching these exclusivistic claims, and we tend to run to John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except by me, but if you track back into the Gospels, he's constantly dropping these kinds of hints. For example, he will say in John chapter 10 that no one comes into the sheepfold unless you go through the door. And he will also say that I am the door of the sheepfold. And in the land of Israel, we find all kinds of sheepfolds that go back into ancient times, some of them still in use. And you'll find that these sheepfolds have their beginning as sort of a a naturally occurring cave, but that then has been enhanced by uh, human activity, building a wall to protect and to keep sheep in, but there's always a gap that's left. And, and that gap it doesn't have a door. There's never any hinges there. There's not a place for the, for the door post to sit in and to, and to swivel on. Um, instead, you'll find that in these ancient sheepfolds that this, uh, this gap that is uh, saved for the sheep to go in and out of, the intention is that once the sheep are herded into the sheepfold, and by the way, you've noticed in the Bible that we're constantly being referred to as sheep. We don't have any natural means of protection, and we're not really smart enough to, to get ourselves out of tight situations. So we need that shepherd to then walk into that gap and lie down, making his own physical body the barrier between the defenseless sheep and anything on the outside, whether that's a thief or whether that's a predator or whatever. And so Jesus will come along at the end of John chapter 10 after saying, I am the door, I am the door, I am the door, three different times. And then he says, and I am the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus messages like this are always highly contextualized, and they're always with full use of visual aids around him, conjuring up the images of this idea of the shepherd, the sheep, the sheepfold, and then the shepherd becoming literally the door of the sheep as he places himself in harm's way, as he becomes the door of the sheepfold. It's just an amazing way of communicating that is so impactful and so easily to be remembered that then I mentioned last time that, that I spoke last week when we were talking about evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. You get uh, this second century Christian historian, early years of the second century, writing this story about the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus. You remember this, right? this incredible life journey that this guy James, Jesus' natural brother, has moving from Jesus is crazy to becoming a leader and then the leader of the early church, then author of one of our 27 New Testament books, the letter of James, and finally in A.D. 62, suffering a martyr's death in this kind of way. And it's Hegesippus that gives us these words that when Jesus was br- uh, uh, James was brought up on the pinnacle of the temple, he was commanded by the religious leaders to renounce his trust in Jesus. 
and to um, say it in front of everybody because all knew how righteous he was and they all took their cues from him. And then instead of renouncing his faith, and by the way, in the world of the Old Testament, Israel is surrounded by multiple religions, uh, multiple ethnicities, multiple cultures, and yet God commanded them to stay true to him and him alone. The situation was no different that the first century church faced in the Greek and Roman world with all of their different philosophical schools, with all of their different religious expressions, multi-religious, multicultural, pluralism was the word of the day. And James, the brother of Jesus, stands and he says, what else can I say about this son of man? He is seated at the right hand of God, and he is going to come in great glory. This business about the door of Jesus, Jesus being the door, I'm not backing on, up on this one step. It doesn't make any difference that most people are going to reject. It doesn't make any difference that we're outnumbered. It doesn't make any difference how much pressure is brought to bear on us as Christians because we have this exclusivistic claim that Jesus is the only door. I am not backing up from that commitment, that proclamation. And because of that, James suffered martyrdom in A.D. 62. This is an amazing um, message to us, reminder to us, even though we might be surrounded by a very pluralistic society, and we may be challenged constantly, give up your distinctives, just become like all of the other nations uh, of the world. We dare not do that. We need to, in the same vein as James, the brother of Jesus, stand firm in the face of that and confess those words that Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who go by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those that find it are few. I've decided in my heart, in my life, I'm going to be one of those few. No matter how few they are, I'm going to be one of them. You as well, right? So that opens the question, what is it then that really is different about Christianity than any other religious system? What is it that makes Christianity so unique? And I'd like to direct your attention Uh, when it comes to what sets Christianity apart to a passage of Scripture in Titus 3. I'm always really inspired every time I read this. In Titus chapter 3 in the New Testament of the Bible, it says in verse 4, and we're going to read a short paragraph, 4, 5, 6, and 7. There's going to be four verses here. And, And out of these will come like four things that are really totally unique to Christianity. So let's read it first of all. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs 
having the hope of eternal life. Now that is quite a paragraph. I just want to read it one more time because we're going to take uh, four verses out of this uh, and just in the next few minutes, uh, just try to unpack what is totally unique here compared to any other religious system that would make Jesus say, I am the way and there are no other ways. Verse four, once again, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Amen. Well, let's unpack, unpack that. The first thing that is unique and that especially moves me about the Christian faith is that Christianity is based on the highest of human ideals. And, and that ideal is sacrificial love. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the foundation of human rights. It's the foundation of racial justice. It's the, it's the foundation of, of, of everything. It, it's the highest ethic that we hold in our hearts. That, in fact, Jesus himself said, you don't love a person more than when you're actually willing to lay your life down for them. And Jesus said, that's the way I've come for you. And that's why in that paragraph we just read twice, he starts this way in verse four, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. When God, and so all of this comes out of the fact that God's just not shouting down to us with a bullhorn telling us how we ought to behave, but he has come out of love for us, that that he loves you, that your life, your worth is somehow incredibly validated by the fact that God loves you, and this is the starting point of it. And Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but he actually, because of love, he made himself our servant. He said, I came to lay down my life for you. That's why, um, if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard me quote this quote way too many times, but it's my favorite all-time quote. It's by Bruce Shelley in the first sentence of his church history book. Christianity is the only major world religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its own God. Just let that sink in for a minute. Why would you make up a religion that has the humiliation of its God as its central event? That humiliation was Jesus hanging naked on a cross, being tortured to death, with my sin and your sin being put upon him. Mm -hmm. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Mm This is him giving his life away so he could serve us with life and a relationship with him. And I find no greater ethic than that. I'm just absolutely compelled by the Christian statement because of this. And Daryl Johnson quoted him a couple of times in our Revelation series last fall. He said, the greatest power in the universe is the weakness of sacrificial love. So that's why Paul started that little paragraph by saying, because of the kindness and love of God. And then he goes on to say, Dr. Wave, that that the grace that came to him because he died for us includes all of us. It does deal with his justice, but it doesn't require any of us to have to perform acceptably before God. I don't know anywhere else that says that either. In in fact, here's how Paul put it. He, Jesus, saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. 
You know, despite the, the claims that we have of exclusivity, Jesus is the way. What's really beautiful about the message of Scripture is that it's so inviting to everyone. This salvation is available to all. I mean, Ezekiel says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord. And then you get uh, in the New Testament, who desires all men to be saved. So God's drawing a big circle and he's not leaving anybody out. And he's making this available to everyone equally. Everyone can access this relationship with God, this forgiveness of God, this right um, standing in God's eyes, and also this hope for a wonderful, positive uh, eternity. God is not drawing, intentionally drawing people outside the circle. God's intentionally drawing people, everybody, inside of his circle. At the same time, this gift that he's given, this forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus is something that it, that's available to everybody and it's also satisfying uh, the, the just demands of, uh, of a righteous God that, that there be a penalty for covenant breaking. He right. was that penalty. Yeah. He took not just your and my place, people that are still today by their choice standing outside the circle that God has drawn. By their choice, God is beckoning them because of that same sacrifice offered for us. That sacrifice is available and offered freely to them as well. It is a message of grace, and it is a message of inclusivity. And yet it's a message of God's justice being satisfied because God couldn't be good if he's not just. I mean, what are you going to do with evil and, and all the victims of evil? I mean... It's, it's just an amazing proposition, it really is. He, he has included everybody because none of us have to perform, and yet he took care of the justice issues. Yes. And then I'm amazed that Paul then tells us that Jesus didn't then bring to us, if we put our faith in him, he doesn't just bring to us a behavioral code. Mm -hmm. he, he actually gives us his own spirit. Yeah. You know, in, in Christianity today, in so many circles of well-meaning, evangelical, orthodox, Bible-believing Christianity, what we have done is that we have taken this wonderful sacrifice that's available for everybody. We've taken this incredible walk with God that He has made available to us, and we have reduced it to a set of do's and don'ts, a set of boxes that we're supposed to check of, I did this and I didn't do that, when in reality what God has intended for us is to pour out His Spirit into us to enable us to walk the way that He's called us to walk. I heard a, a, a very well-known Christian speaker, pastor, say one time, look, brethren, I, I know that, that you are saved by God's grace, but let me tell you this, after that, it's up to you. And I went, that's good news? That's supposed to be good news? It's very bad news. That's right bad there. news. If it's up to me, it's going to crash and burn every time, every day. The reality of it is that this same God who has so graciously condescended to meet us right where we are, 
and, and to satisfy his own justice by giving heaven's best and, and, and allowing his son to die in our place, this God has provided for us an empowerment to walk the way that he's called us to walk, not in our own strength, Amen. but rather like we uh, sang in, in the song, but he's living through me. And uh, at my weakest point, it's Christ living through me. We do all these things by his power that works mightily within me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This, this is the, the beauty, another aspect, unique aspect of the Christian message is that the God who calls us into this relationship with him is a God who empowers us to walk in his ways. Amen. So here's how Paul put that in that paragraph we just read. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. I want you to know is God's pouring out His Spirit all over the world right now. Uh, people are being radically transformed by the message of Jesus Christ, uh, not because they're buying into a philosophical system that just connects the dots for them, but because God is pouring out His own Spirit and filling people's lives, evicting demonic power, bringing healing and bringing life. This mm -hmm. is happening all over the world today. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very powerful part of the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Um, through the washing of rebirth, that's he washes away our sin and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's something I haven't found anywhere else. And uh, that's so, so very, very powerful. And then Paul will also underscore another uniqueness of the Christian, of the Christian statement, the Christian faith system. And that's that the gospel addresses the issues of eternal life. The gospel uniquely addresses, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, uniquely addresses the issues of eternal life with, with, with an assurance about eternal life that you don't necessarily find in other religions. Um, I, I have a friend, uh, he was a friend of mine when I was at the University of Minnesota and he came to Christ and, and he wrote a book, which unfortunately he just called it eternal life. He wrote a book, he'd done years of research, he wrote a book that has never been published actually, so, <laughs> so I'm afraid you can't buy the book. But he went through and he, he, he put on his hat like, I wanna find out about eternal life and how I can know if there is life after death. How I can know I'm gonna be in heaven with, G, with God, not hell, with the devil. And, and so he went through and he, he it's, it's partly it's partly a, a biographical sketch of his journey and probably with some fictional elements to make the storyline go because he pictures himself as a story. I'm actually in the book under another name, but I had interfaced as a pastor with his spiritual journey at a certain point. And it was, you know, I knew this, I guess, but it was really eye-opening for me to read that because no, it just hit me. No, there is no belief system. I mean, you might have reincarnation. That's not really eternal life, uh, you may have, you may have, um, well, if I'm martyred, I'll be able to go to heaven and marry 90 virgins or something, but I don't know that for sure. But Christianity clearly talks about there being an eternal part to who you are, your spirit. You're creating the image of God, and, and there is life after death, 
but Christianity speaks to the certainty of life after death in ways other faith systems do not. And uh, here's how Paul put it in that paragraph we read. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. In fact, that, e- that eternal life, that salvation, not only applies to our hearts and our relationship with God, but the Bible clearly teaches that that renewal will come to the heavens and the earth. So, so I, love, uh, I love how uh, v- um, Vinoth Ramakrandra puts it. He writes, and I, we may have this on the screen, Christian salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any other religious systems or philosophies of humankind. So he's talking more about more than eternal life. Eternal life for us will have a context of a new heavens and a new earth. And so he says the biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say there is salvation in other faiths too, I ask them, well, what salvation are you talking about? Mm -hmm. No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world, the ordinary world that the cross and resurrection of Jesus do. Exactly. You just don't find it elsewhere. No, for the hope for this world or hope for the world to come. Yeah. It's just, uh, we, we have a kind of a, almost like a corner on the market in the marketplace of world religions uh, with respect to the abundant life that we're promised here and the eternal life that we're promised there. Uh, one of the largest of all world religions, Islam, Um, you can ask any adherent after living a devoted, committed, uh, observant uh, life all of their lives, are you ready to meet your maker? Do you know that you're right with God? Are you certain of a positive eternal life? And they'll not be able to answer that in the affirmative because that is as basic, as as intrinsic as it is to the Christian message to the Christian worldview, to, the, uh, to Christian theology is absent in Islam. And, you know, it's like we really do have a corner on the market. There is in, in Christianity, uh, in, uh, the, in, the, in, in a biblical, biblically-based faith, um, yes, it's indeed all human beings are created equal in God's sight. But uh, unfortunately, not all religious expressions are created equal. All men are created equal, but all religions are not. Just a few basics in terms of the Christian faith, the things that we have to offer in the marketplace, is this idea of real forgiveness. Real forgiveness, not, not redefining what sin is, not ignoring what, uh, the, the results of sin or the existence of sin, but God really got down on our level and dealt with our sin problem in the most effective way. Someone took our place. Someone took our place. And that then brings reconciliation with God. And we can know that we are right with God. You know, in the book of First uh, John, little book toward the end of the New Testament, uh, and yet in that book there are about a half a dozen places that says, by, by this we may know that we are in Him. And Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. I'm persuaded He's able to keep what I've committed to Him against that day. We have assurance. 
of this right relationship with God that is going to result in a positive eternity. When Jesus comes in and he does this cleansing work, then he takes up this residence within us. There's no other. Even the mother religion that we grew out of, uh, Judaism, has no, I, no concept of an indwelling presence of God. And yet we're told over and over, our bodies are God's temple. We have the Holy Spirit who was sent from him dwelling with inside of us. There's no other faith on the, uh, on the planet that has that reality, that promise, that component this uh, idea that we can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not us jumping through hoops or going through 12-step programs or just, you know, putting our nose to the grindstone and willing to be better people. It's, no, it's, it's, it's not that. In Christianity, Paul talks about, in Romans chapter 12, about us being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. There's no other faith that offers that. This whole idea of us being empowered, not just us checking boxes and doing the best that we can to stumble along and hopefully get across the finish line at the end, but when God comes into, when Jesus takes up his residence inside of us, when the Holy Spirit is poured into us, then the God who has called us to live an exceptional life is the same God who's going to empower and enable us to walk in that Um, exceptional way of life. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me, right? It's um, I I can do all things through him. It's I'm doing, we're doing these things by his power that works mightily within us. It is this promise of God's empowerment. So whether it's forgiveness and reconciliation, whether it's uh, this idea of indwelling or transformation or God empowering us, these are aspects of the Christian faith that are absolutely absent in other faith expressions. I wish, I think it would really be cool if all religions were created equal. Unfortunately, they aren't. So, be encouraged, body of Christ. Be encouraged, Central Assembly, to hold on, hold fast to, cherish those uniquenesses of our faith because we are the only message bearers that have those messages. You'd make a good preacher, by the way. You think? <laughs> Might be coming at this a little late in life. <laughs> Mid-career change. Yeah. That is so true. I'd like you to bow your heads, the worship team, if you could come.